0: listening to The Nature of Story. I'm Michael Nielsen. Thank you so much for joining me for another uh, hour of conversation about story in society. Uh, Today we have uh, a really inspiring conversation with a really inspiring guest, Dr. Henry Jenkins from the University of Southern California. Um, He uh, is is, is busy studying uh, uh, the transformation of media at this point in history, um, uh, which I'll let him describe more, uh, in his opening remark. Um, but, uh, uh, ultimately this, this conversation centered and his research, uh, largely centers around the question of how do we kind of write the rules for, uh, this new participatory culture that we are finding ourselves in this culture, uh, where it is no longer as Seth Godin describes, uh, uh no longer the, the king on the hill speaking to his subjects it is now that everyone's on an equal playing field and the subjects are talking back to the king all the time, whether it be in pop culture, like movies and books and, and music, or if it's in marketing and advertising, um, uh, it's becoming, you know, a, a, a trite truism uh, essentially now that, uh, uh, you know, that everyone has the power to talk back now, right? That nothing has really fundamentally changed in communication other than the fact that the tools are now present for, audiences to participate in culture in a direct way they haven't been able to for a very long time. Dr. Jenkins will remind us in this conversation that uh, uh, this is the the participatory nature of of folk culture uh, where people uh, participate actively in the culture around them is actually more the norm historically when you take the long view than uh, uh, the anomaly of the last, you know, uh, uh, couple of centuries, I suppose he might say, you know, uh, uh, where it's been more about the single uh, lone creators that are worshipped for their work. Um, so we have a fascinating conversation here today. Um, Dr. Jenkins uh, is the author of two books of particular, many more, but two books that are particularly relevant to this conversation. Um, one, which is the one that I read uh, that brought me to him, which is uh, Convergence Culture, Uh, and then the other one, uh, which is By Any Media Necessary, which is his latest book, I believe, and he co wrote it with a few other folks, Um, but that's uh, a book-length study on the ways in which media is being used in the current age of activism um, and studying the the successes and failures of modern-day young activists leveraging 21st century media to their political ends. Um, so it's a fascinating, fascinating area of research that he devotes himself to. Um, but we talk about everything from you know what he sees when he looks at an event like San Diego Comic Con. Um, what is the nature of fandom? Um, who can create the culture? And and you know what what does it mean to lose a uh, uh, power as 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 uh, individual artists uh, that you know. Grew up modeling ourselves, as I say in the conversation, on folks like Steven Spielberg, and just feeling like, oh, we could just create work, and and people will eat it. You know, what's the, <laughs> you know, what what is what is what does this new world mean for us? Um, and uh, uh, you know, he he also talks about uh, uh, some of his his work with the MacArthur Foundation uh, in education, uh, where he has been working to kind of prepare schools for uh, and prepare the kids and students in schools with the tools they will need to actively participate in participatory culture. You know, what do, what does the next generation need in terms of kind of an omnidisciplinary disciplinary uh, uh, focus um, uh, in order to actively be included as part of that talk back participation folk art um, that we're all going to become a part of. Um, so it, it, it ranges on a variety of topics, but uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating conversation, and I can't wait to give it to you. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Henry Jenkins. Well, wonderful. So, so I guess just to kind of start broadly here for, for a lot of folks, uh, you know, my audience tends to be a mixture of filmmakers and kind of like marketing people, too, because the storytelling kind of, you know, as you know, traverses all of this now. Um, uh, for folks who aren't as aware of your work, I I, I like to frame when I've told people I'm interviewing you that you've talked about us being kind of in the moment of major change in the media landscape, you know, akin to going from oral communication to printing press. Could you give people just kind of a a picture of kind of what your area of study is as you describe it and kind of how you describe where we are in media history right now?
1: Sure. I mean, I'm a radically undisciplined scholar in the sense that I don't fit comfortably within most of the established academic categories. My job title is Provost Professor of Communication, Journalism, Cinematic Arts and Education at the University of Southern California. So that already indicates a kind of miscellaneous studies approach to things, that I'm scattered across three schools. But what I really study is media and how we relate to media. And media going back as far as the printing press. uh, I've written a lot about vaudeville and early popular theater performances, and all the way forward to virtual reality, games, the internet, so forth. So I take a long view of how humans communicate with each other, how we've told stories, how we've represented our lives to each other. And what I like to say is that we're in the middle of a period of profound and prolonged media change that I've been documenting over almost 30 years of my career so far and doesn't see any signs of slowing down. And it is a change that I would put on par as this transition from morality to literacy, the rise of the printing press, the emergence of modern mass media in the late 19th, early 20th century. Those are the great media revolutions. Maybe we can go back to st- cave paintings, but we don't know enough about that one to know its is long-term, uh, or who the early adapters were and what the long-term uh, distribution was on cave painting, so we'll leave that one out for the moment. So part of what makes this profound is, I think, a shift in who has access to the tools, who can create culture, who can share culture. So what we're seeing is a revival of folk culture in an age of digital distribution. We're seeing the possibility of everyday people having access to tools to tell their own stories and communicate their own identities with communities on whatever scale they want. Some of it very intimate. The sort of exchanges we have one-on-one, the sort of exchanges we have on Facebook with people we already know. Some are more dispersed. Twitter, a tweet could travel very far and we're seeing the President of the United States use Twitter to communicate with the planet. Uh, Some places in between, right? So a protest video on YouTube may or may not see massive numbers of people. So the scale of spread varies enormously. But that capacity to create and share is what's really fundamental. So I like to tell the story, my grandmother was a remix artist. She was a quilter from the Appalachian Mountains uh, in North Georgia. And she would have grown up with the women of the village stitching pieces of cloth together to make blankets, right, to make quilts. The cloth would have been manufactured by a local textile mill, right, in a lot of cases. The textile mill had no control over what she did with those bits of cloth. She created something new. She learned, they did it in a structure of informal mentorship, so older women would have taught younger women how to participate. There would have been a social community, a social network that grew around quilting, and they would have used that as a gift from the community to a young couple having their first child, someone who just got married, a widow who had lost her husband, this kind of sense of social gifting was an important part of it. So if we think of that as a moment where folk culture thrived, we can say throughout the 20th century, folk culture got pushed further and further underground. It's not that people don't make quilts today, but quilting is no longer a normative practice, even in the North Georgia mountains, it's an exceptional practice. Quilts now have individual authors rather than communities creating them, right? They're something that we hold up as amazing works of art, but they not, it's not a common practice. So throughout the 20th century, mass media moved in and eradicated many of the forms of folk participation in culture that had thrived in the 19th, early 20th century. But with the rise of digital, we're seeing all those forms come back and it could be gamers modding games and creating something new. It could be fans creating fan fiction or fan art or cosplay. But we're seeing new modes of expression that are emerging at the current time because people have the tools to once again bring that folk culture logic and practice to bear. So just as the content of my grandmother's quilt was the production of the factory, the industrial era, the content of, math, of participatory culture today is the content of mass media. So the stories we start with, the raw materials are often commercially produced stories, but what we do with them is to return control of those stories to the public who are t- retelling those stories in really radical and profound ways ways. And that's the moment I think we're living in, why this is, to me, something that's really important. What we're seeing is the struggle over the terms of our participation as we get deeper into the 21st century. Will corporations own us once again? Will corporate-dominated media squash this grassroots uprising we've seen in the last few decades? Or does it find its way to exist in the cracks and alongside it? When we, do we start out creating culture and end up creating politics and education and religion? in new terms because of the participatory nature of this, in the same way that the printing press leads to the Protestant Reformation, say, leads to shift in what science is, leads to a number of profound changes in the society.
0: Yeah. Well, would you you say in in that landscape as we're moving more, more towards, and I suppose are currently in the thick of participatory culture? Are we moving further away from the concept of kind of the lone single creator uh, that the the novelist who buries herself for three years and then comes out with a new work into this other area where like everything is communal? Or how would you think about that?
1: Yeah, I would say the moment of the lone creator is a very small parenthesis in the larger history of art, because most of human history, storytellers existed in relation to a community. So Homer, say, would have, would have told the story of the Odyssey and the Iliad many, many times. And each time he told it, it would have come out a little different because he would have emphasized the, the heroes from the city-state that he happened to be performing in, right? If he saw the audience was interested, he would draw the story out or contract it. He would really pump certain emotions because he felt like they were resonating with the crowd that particular night. So Homer as an artist would have been in dialogue with his audience. Shakespeare would have been taking stories that have been created by other playwrights over hundreds of years and added to them. So the Romeo and Juliet were footnotes in someone else's play that he turned into one of his great tragedies. And he would have done it night after night. He was a playwright and also part of a performance troupe. So he would have been observing the audience and reshaping it on the fly. Dickens is publishing his novels serially, and people are meeting the, the delivery of those packages of the, at the pier to read it and discuss it. And he's getting feedback while he's writing his novels. And so we know he reshaped his fiction in response to audience feedback and probably ang- was anxious about spoilers the way contemporary TV producers are, right? So, th- so that most of human history, writing has been a dialogue. I mean, we romanticize it as this creative act that comes out of someone's head. Certainly by the time you get to mass media, film has always been a collaborative form. Television has always been collaborative. What's emerging is the audience's voice is as much part of the collaboration of film and television today as any other factor. And that I think is what's radical. And we're seeing what happens to those works after they go out into the world. We're seeing the debates around is Twin Peaks any good? It was last week's episode of Game of Thrones, did that deliver what we wanted from it, that kind of conversation. We're seeing the stories that emerge when secondary characters become the fixation of certain fans and they get rewritten and redrawn and recreated on a grassroots level. We're seeing the amateur videos people make to see if they can master the special effects of Star Wars and create, or Star Trek and create something on their own terms. All of that stuff is visible now and circulates through the culture And every so often, some piece of that amplified by the mass media system and becomes part of the conversation. So the Chewbacca mom video would be a great example of someone's home media footage that most people around the world now recognize because of the way this home video got blown up by mass media and became part of the national conversation around the release of of a Star Wars movie.
0: Well, and and as you point out, you know, people would have these conversations have always taken place, but they've been around the water cooler, right? You know, no one, they, they were so small and, cons- and and a few people were involved and it never actually grew into anything that was louder than just those few people. Whereas now, yeah, as you point out, the, the, the you know, corporate America, and I would I would put in the same group, even the artists themselves that, that enjoy the control are fearing losing that control. I, you know, as a documentary filmmaker myself, I would lie if I didn't say I feel a little anxiety around this stuff. Um, uh, but it, there's also... It's sort of a not a question of if it's going to happen. We're there, right? So now it's about what do we yeah. do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I constantly talk to people in the industry who are nervous about losing control. Reality is they lost control 20 years ago, <laughs> right? They may just be waking up to the fact that they've lost control. The challenge is not to regain control. It's how to get in the game, yeah. how to ensure that your media is part of the conversation. Because we're in an era of peak TV, right? Where more TV is than anyone could possibly watch. So how do your show become pertinent? It becomes pertinent by attracting a creative, engaged fan base that is going to drive the visibility of that story and make it central to the culture. So certain shows, Stranger Things, last Summer, uh, Handmaid's Tale this year, 13 Reasons Why, emerge from the audience, discovering them and really making them central to the national conversation. Some of those have histories, you know, Handmaid's Tale was around as a novel for a long time before it was made into a television show, but when it emerged as a television show, it could have sunk beneath the waves, it could have been disappeared. Instead, people are dressing up like handmaids and showing up at protest rallies against Trump. That makes that show pertinent to a conversation. So the producers of that show have figured out how to engage the audience constructively in a dialogue that increases their visibility in the culture. So we know that the average fan brings something like 20 non-fan viewers with them to a show that they like. So those might be family members, they might be friends, they might be people at the office, they might be dorm mates, but just their passion for a show can result in 20 plus more people coming to the table than were there before. So your hardcore fans are incredibly valuable to you. And very little they do is ultimately going to damage damage you so much as increasing the visibility and desire of people to engage with what it is you produce.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you introduced this idea of, of fandom as kind of the next step, or or one of the elements of participatory culture. Because, you know, I, I think about you know Comic Con. I think about you know uh, sports fandom. I made a documentary about sports fandom a few years ago, and and one of the things I came away from it I, as a diehard sports fan myself. Is that in many ways it offers a lot of the same community, a lot of the same kind of rituals, and a lot of the same like sense of purpose that even like religion does. And I, I, as, as someone who studies fandom and and, and, and and participatory culture, when you look at something like San Diego Comic Con, what do you see?
1: I mean, I see the meeting of many tribes, right? San Diego is a huge phenomenon, right? I don't know what this year's numbers are, but let's say 160,000 people would ballpark. Um, 160,000 people with Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts who are involved in various forms of fan participation, but aren't coming for the same reasons or going to the same watering halls. San Diego is a much more diverse fan convention than almost any other that I go to. It's racially diverse, it's now roughly even in terms of gender participation, so everyone assumes it's a bunch of geeky white guys getting together. It's not at this point, right? So if this is the meeting point where Hollywood goes on the road and talks to a stand-in for its audience, it's confronting a more diverse public than ever before. And I would say it's probably a key factor in driving the diverse push for diversity uh, in media representation that's going on right now. It's I mean, it's not just the Oscars, so white hashtags and the other things that are driving this. It's when they go on the road and present stuff to that audience... They get cheers when they bring out people of color in leading roles and when they give women central powerful positions. They, the news media wants to cover it as a bunch of white guys angry that there's a black stormtrooper out there, <laughs> right? And those flame, the small number of flamers gets representative of the fandom as a whole, and they're seen as kind of this reactionary whiny bunch. Reality, fans have been driving the push for diversity and representation in so many different ways. And they're having heated discussions about what's appropriate and what's not. Is it right to take existing characters and, you know, change their color? Is it right to rewrite history? Is You know, there are debates about the right way to do it. We're t- dealing with genre conventions that go back to the late 19th century. So they're infused with colonialism and white supremacy. So we have to rethink the tools of stories today in popular fiction. And so there's going to be pushback. But what you're seeing is a group that is really eager to engage and participate in the cutting-edge trends in popular culture. The San Diego's less and less about superheroes and more and more about the full range of media. As more and more media becomes niche, more popular genres take over, more and more different kinds of shows come to San Diego and court that, that audience. But they are a group that can give thumbs up or thumbs down. If you bomb at San Diego, you're in deep trouble in contemporary culture because that spreads ripples across the social media sphere it's now covered so extensively by mainstream media that every bump in the road gets picked up and covered by entertainment weekly and the indie wire and the hollywood reporter and you know i read dozens of stories every day from san diego this summer even though i wasn't able to get there But you know, it's also a place where deals are made, and a world where stories are more and more told across media platforms. It's the place which is not organized by medium. Mm -hmm. So you know, the film people go to their conventions, the game people go to their conventions, the TV people go to their conventions, the comics people go to their conventions. They all go to San Diego, and so you see behind the scenes these deals that are creating extended universes and stitching, creating spin-off comics of. movies and TV shows, those are deals are cut at San Diego. Yeah. So it's the center of what I call convergence culture.
0: Yeah, and I, w- I want to jump on that in a moment, but I, I, I another question on kind of this idea of, of this transition we're in, in, in the media landscape. Given how kind of um, in, a, in its infancy we are, or maybe we're toddlers now, given that we've been in this for a little bit, I don't know. Uh, uh, you, it's it's we seem to still be kind of figuring it out you know you you talk about kind of like the the way that audiences have been pushing for more diversity in media and, and things of this nature um we're kind of figuring out the lexicon we're kind of figuring out what arguments work one way but not the other way and things of this nature you you, you i watched um and anyone else who's interested should look this up there's a great uh, uh master you gave in india a couple years ago um uh that uh was about uh somebody brought up the the the, the consistency with Folks complaining about uh, the Last Airbender uh, being whitewashed, and then to Idris Elba being cast in Thor as a formerly white character, and being, what's the difference in the argument? We're like figuring out kind of the 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 way we, what do we really believe with these things? How do we really articulate yes. what's the difference? Do you see us making progress in that way? Do you see the scaffolding being built?
1: Yes and no. I mean, if we look <laughs> at the statistics that Stacy Smith at USC has developed, tracing year by year. Participation of women and people of color in the entertainment industry, the line has remained remarkably fixed. Right number-wise, there's not a lot of growth. Visibility, cultural impact—we've seen in the last couple of years huge progress in terms of shows featuring people of color. In terms of you know, Moonlight running the Oscar, uh, you know, of Scandal having been a huge success, paving the way for Empire, paving the way for Blackish paving the way for Insecure. We can sort of trace this legacy of shows that are out there and shows that are having a significant impact. We can look at the diversity of casting in the Star Wars films as a kind of sign of our times. Uh, We can look at numbers that are showing that films by women, directed by women, are highly competitive in the marketplace at the current time, particularly in the wake of Wonder Woman's success this summer. So there are trends that suggest a number of minority participants in the industry are not shifting, but the impact of that participation has grown dramatically. And that's in part because you've got the whole layers of audience that are ready to pump that stuff, right? So scandal was a phenomenon of Twitter, and particularly black Twitter, and the degree to which African Americans are represented compared to the percentage of the population on Twitter as a platform drove people to want to watch the show and wanting to live-tweet it and discuss it while it was being aired, and that phenomenon, I think, becomes really important. Look at the role of podcasts uh, in the new mediascape. There are so many podcasts by American Muslim, by Latinos, by African Americans, by Desi Girls, talking about uh, the media they consume and what stories matter to them and why, and those drive audiences to become part of this larger conversation. So we are sorting through things on an extraordinary level. And there are backlashes all the time in every possible direction around this because we're gonna all make mistakes. As I said, the language of popular culture grew out of the 19th century, right? We The genres that we use today come out of the pulp magazines that were published in the late 19th, early 20th century. And the stories, the plot, what counts as a hero, what counts as a villain, you know, what's the relation of the hero to their people? Is it a single hero arch or a collaborative hero arch? All of those questions have impacts in terms of how we think about what diversity is going to mean in our mediascape today. But I think what's driving it is the audience and the ability of the audience to call out failure and to celebrate success and to ensure that a show that really speaks to people Gets more visibility than ever before.
0: Yeah. What What responsibility do you see on the part of uh, content makers or, or or filmmakers or just anybody who's who's creating the the media that goes out now for the reaction and participation culture? So I, what comes to mind in my mind is something like um, after the so- the serial podcast was out, uh, you know, there were a whole bunch of people who go to Reddit to try and solve the crime. Past you know uh, uh, the podcast being over. And, and you get again, since we're still kind of figuring this all out, it gets into sometimes some weird ethical territories. And I'm curious how you see the role of the creator who kind of, you know, is the first snowflake that starts the avalanche. You know, what, what's, what responsibilities are we learning we have?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think storytellers have always had some kinds of cultural responsibility. I mean, I certainly want a world where the storyteller has as much freedom mm-hmm. as possible, right? I'm a total First Amendment, you know... Uh, enthusiasts, the free expression all the way, right? But that means with great power comes great responsibility to, to borrow a line from someplace or other, right? <laughs> so with great power comes great responsibility. If you're gonna have at that level of access, you have to be aware of what the wake behind your boat, right? You have to be aware of the consequences of what you created. And certainly you know what might have been a dubious ethical choice to disclose certain personal information. In a journalistic form, in the past, becomes much bigger in a world where people are going to search everything. Mm -hmm. So, in convergence culture, I had a story I wrote about Survivor spoilers. Right, this is maybe a phenomenon of 20 years ago, but these young fans would go online and try to figure out who the contestants were on Survivor before they were announced on the air, and they would use everything in social media at the time to track information. So, you picture. Some guy at your office disappears for two and a half months, comes back 30 pounds lighter, sunburned, his arm covered with leech marks. you sort of, they leave traces. They can't just disappear. So if you have a large enough network that is willing to pursue that information, they will find who these guys are. And they became better and better at identifying the contestants before they were announced by CBS and figuring out the outcomes before CBS by putting all their information Together. That's what's possible today. Now, as they did that, they started stalking people, they started invading people's privacy, you know, that ability to track down information. So you create an information scavenger hunt and no one could control it. Right? Uh and we've seen those kind of ethical binds more and more when you picture scaling up the kind of curiosity that you fuel your stories that touched real people in real ways. And so I think that's that's something, particularly nonfiction media makers have a lot of accountability for. Yeah. It's also the case that fiction filmmakers have that responsibility to use racial racist epithets and stereotypes in your work. You may be fueling the alt-right response in some way that you didn't anticipate, but you may be giving resources to hate, hate groups you know, just as making a more diverse show might generate more engagement with certain audiences, the falling back on those old stereotypes isn't innocent anymore. Mm-hmm. It's something that can have real negative consequences in people's lives, and that always would have been the case, but it's now on a scale that we and a visibility that we've never encountered in the past.
0: If if this if most of this um, we've been talking a lot about how kind of the the audience becomes kind of the arbiter of the way places, the way media goes, that, that, that you know, more diversity in media comes as a result of audience demand. Do, how do we talk about audience demand uh, and in, and put in the element of access to technology? If, if all of this is happening, you know, in cyberspace, you know, uh, uh, what about all the folks who don't have access to that in the same way? How, how do you account for that in the way you think about this?
1: Well, I, th- I think it's a, it's a serious issue challenge. I mean, it's a relatively trivial question when we're thinking in the level of culture, right? So their fandom has multiple layers of participation, and some people participate in the most intense social media circuits, others don't. Those with more visibility drive the industry, right? That's a concern. When we pull this toward education or politics, that's where the implication, what I call the participation gap, becomes that much greater. So as we bring technology into the classroom, are we doing it in ways that create haves and have not? Do we exaggerate gaps in our society in terms of access to education resources? So there's a digital divide, which is about access to technology. There's the participation gap, which is about access to opportunities and resources and knowledge to be able to meaningfully participate. Do you have mentorship as a young person? into this new media environment. There are people around you who understand how it works. And I don't mean just technically how it works, but the social ramifications of choices you're making in that space. Do you feel empowered to participate? Do you feel entitled to participate? Do you feel like your voice matters? Those determine who gets to speak and who doesn't. When that's about who has access to jobs, because who has skills, who comes to the classroom already confident in computers and who gets shoved aside and put in the remedial tape, that has consequences in our society and people's lives. Now, these consequences aren't always predictable. In our book, By Any Media Necessary, which is about young people and activism, we look at the dreamers, the undocumented youth, who are some of the most sophisticated users of new media for political change today. And they do so often without owning their own computers by using computers in school libraries and public libraries, labor halls, uh, barring cameras from wherever they have access to it, but creating media that powerfully spoke to their own experiences and allow them to tell their stories straight to the camera about what it is to be an undocumented in America today. And telling their stories to people who maybe never have known up close or known that they knew someone who was undocumented because so many people... We're living in the shadows. So it's not just automatic, all right, you're poor, you're, you're brown, you're, you don't have access to it. It's an uneven distribution of skills, opportunities, resources. But we want to make sure that those opportunities exist for everyone in our society because at a moment of sh- sh- dramatic demographic change in American society where the political structure is shifting in response to this participatory environment I'm describing. Who gets to speak and who gets heard is a question of enormous importance to the future of our society.
0: We'll be right back. This podcast is produced by Story First Media, a video content production company focused on storytelling. Cultivate your audience with story, then convert them to customers. Let us know about your upcoming video project at www.storyfirstmedia.com. If you're consuming this content, you're either listening to it as a podcast or you're viewing it as a video because it exists in both forms. If you'd rather watch my guests and I talk over Skype video, you can find this and all subsequent episodes by subscribing to my YouTube channel. Or if you'd rather listen to the conversation, it's available for download wherever you get your podcasts. I really think these conversations are valuable and will only get better as we go on. And having earned your attention means the world to me. These aren't short conversations. Uh, So if you have any comments, questions, suggestions for guests or topics, books I should read, etc., please, please email me at thenatureofstory at gmail.com or get me on Twitter or Facebook at Michael Nielsen. That's N-E-E-L-S-E-N. All right, back to the interview. Well, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you you did some work recently, or maybe still are, with uh, uh, the MacArthur Foundation, perhaps, with regard yes, to... Sir. go ahead. Yeah, like, tell, tell me a little about that, because it was with regard to kind of how do we ad- adjust education going forward in this new culture of participation. Do I have that correct?
1: Yeah, I've, I've had two phases of work with the MacArthur. The first phase is the one you're describing, which has been about education. And I did a white paper about how do we prepare schools for this participatory culture I'm describing. What are the skills young people will need to be able to fully participate? In? And we developed curriculum around that. We've done teacher tr- teacher training professional development programs here in Los Angeles to help teachers incorporate some of that in the classroom. It's part of a much deeper commitment the MacArthur Foundation made to digital media and learning, and there are literally hundreds of people funded by those, those initiatives. Um, and so, which, you know, one of the projects I did under that was inspired by an African American educator and playwright named Ricardo Pitts Wiley, who's from uh, Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And Ricardo was going into the prisons and working with incarcerated youth and getting them to read Moby Dick, which, if you've ever looked, tried to read Moby Dick, that is a really difficult book. I know, and I, when I was in high school, I didn't get past the whiteness of the whale, right? I, I got about 52, and bam, that was just it for me. But what he did it was getting them to think about who these characters would be in the 21st century. So instead of a story about the whaling trade, which is a dangerous industry, attracts men on the fringes of society, and has questions of charismatic leadership and so forth, he they, these young men wanted to tell the story of the drug trade. The great white thing is cocaine in their lives. So And then Ahab becomes a gang leader who is balancing the business of dealing drugs versus His desire for vengeance against forces that had destroyed himself and his family. And how far would the men go in following him in this path of self-destruction? So all the key themes of Bobby Tech were there, the key issues. They just got transformed in the kind of fan fiction way to the 21st century. So we were inspired by that to develop a curriculum for the English classroom that encourages people to rewrite classic literature as a fan mind and to engage in a kind of creative dialogue with the works of the past. Um, And also look at how Melville himself engaged in that kind of dialogue, how he built on the Bible, how he built on Homer, how the idea emerged in conversation with Hawthorne, so forth. There's a lot we now know about Melville's own reading and writing practices that fed into Moby Dick. So again, he was not the sole author existing in his own creative universe, it was, in fact, the author in dialogue with the culture around them. So by doing that, we bring it into the classroom and we encourage the skills of participation, collective storytelling, that we think are valuable in the participatory culture that surrounds us and help kids maybe open up those literary works to people who might not have been exposed to them before. Do you- so, you know, Ricardo was really articulate about the fact that everyone has the ability to read and engage with serious literature and that we are patronizing when we tell kids you can't read this yeah
0: is, is another component um, when, when you think about what what skills are going to be needed in a participatory culture um, something that occurred to me is it is it you, you mentioned that you kind of are a, a, you know multidisciplined in terms of what you study because of the nature of what you're studying because me- media is so varied. Is it also true that on the part of creators and folks who are going to be participants in participatory culture need to be somewhat omni, um, uh, I don't know, crafted in the sense of, I'm you know, growing up myself, I could look at someone like Steven Spielberg and say, ah, I'm just going to devote myself to being a filmmaker, and I'll just do that the rest of my life. Today, I feel like I have to be a filmmaker, I have to be a podcaster, I have to be a, you know, uh, a television writer, I have to be like five other things. Is that another component of kind of multidisciplinary act, acts or is it Or I take that wherever? No,
1: I really think that's part of it is we, we need dispar- We need a kind of multidisciplinary knowledge. We need knowledge. The idea that the disciplines that, Amer- that we use in American education that emer- emerge in the industrial age, most of our disciplines date back again to the late 19th, early 20th century when they first formed, that those would be the same disciplines for an information age seems fairly unlikely, right? We've changed the core social structure, the core economy of our society, we're going to need new skill sets. We don't know what those are yet. So the best thing is to break down the walls and allow people to mix and match. But the other thing is that we gear our education today still toward the autonomous learner. So all forms of collaboration in school are seen as cheating. But we work in a workplace where, yes, you have lots of skills, but we also have to collaborate with other people to achieve those skills, right? We live in a world of collective storytelling, collective intelligence. Where we depend on each other more and more as part of a network. Yeah. So we need to figure out how to bring into the classroom skills at networking, skills of collaboration and knowledge sharing, and the ethics of collaboration and knowledge sharing that are very different from those where the individual, you know, the lotion of the rugged American individualist shaped our educational system. Yeah. So I'm more, and I've been experimenting in my classes and having team exams where teams work together to solve the questions on the exam, and, and also we build the team semester long. So when they get to the final exam, they're, they know how to pool their knowledge, they know how to weigh each other's expertise, they know who to trust on what pieces of information, and they have an ethical accountability to each other about the information they share. Right. So in a world where our passing along of information has huge consequences, we have to take ownership over the information we spread to other people. Mm-hmm. We have a president who continually passes along totally <laughs> bottom-dwelling le- bottom information, right? So us <laughs> long crap information, and then says, oh, when he's called out on it, he says, well, I had no idea if it was true or not. I thought it was interesting. Right. Well, that's not acceptable anymore. Yeah. Certainly not by the president of the United States, but not acceptable by a 7th grader. Yeah. Right? You want people, if you're going to pass information to your friends, your friends have to be able to count on the quality of that information. You should develop a reputation for the information you share. And in that context, learning really has consequences. What your expertise is, what you can claim ownership over in terms of knowledge matters as we come to value you uh, based on the information you share with the group. And whether the group can count on you to bring valuable stuff back to the tribal conversations that are taking place? Do,
0: do you feel it's interesting? You bring up that kind of the the, the taking responsibility for information. So using that example uh, of President Trump or or any of the kind of uh, you know fake news, whatever gets sent out, taking responsibility for that is that a um, I guess evidence of our infancy in this new media landscape, or do you think it's um, or maybe that maybe and uh, just sort of counterfeit cultural currency where it's like, if, if, if having something to talk about in the culture is the currency, it doesn't matter if it's true or not. We have something to talk about. It, it, do you, do you feel anything like that or is it?
1: Well, I, th- I think some of it is our infancy. Some mm-hmm. of it is the breakdown of established institutions, mm-hmm. the emergence of new institutions that are untested and untried. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, how do we tell the difference between Huffington Post and Breitbart? Right. You know, they're both new institutions that are presenting information. Both of them distort the news in different ways, but one of them makes up the news and the other one, you know, amplifies certain trends in the news. And we, we're sorting through the ethical differences and the quality of information between them. And that, I think, is part of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yellow journalism and sensationalism wasn't invented last year by the Russians, right? right? Fake news has a long history in American culture. Go back and watch Citizen Kane again. It's Charles Foster Kane's stories about a man who creates fake news, right? And he says, you know, to his reporter in Cuba who says there's no war here, you write me the prose poems, I'll make make the war. Mm Mm-hmm who sends reporters out and snoop in the neighbors and takes local gossip and amplifies it up and describes it, who has two headlines ready depending on the outcome of the election, one of which celebrates the outcome if he wins, the other calls it an election fraud if he loses. So Charles Foster Kane and Donald Trump have an awful lot in common in terms of the ways they think about how you control the information flows of a culture in order to shape political outcomes. So we know this is not a new phenomenon. It's been amplified by social media. We now know that sort of sensationalized information travels further, reaches more people than reliable information. The struggle the New York Times is having is its kind of serious reporting doesn't travel through Facebook the way some of the fake stories of the last election cycle travel. And in a world where algorithms of how many people see something pushes it up the chain? Mm-hmm. We have an application problem. We have a situation where misinformation gets pushed up and there are no checks in the system that verifies it. And once it's dispersed, there's no fact checking that's going to reach the same number of people as got the original message. So a story like, Is Obama a Muslim? Yeah. Could re- or does Mama's birth certificate real or not? Circulate again and again and again and there's no definitive moment where he could turn at a press conference present the evidence Shut it down. Yeah, right That's the dispersal of information means the old corrective mechanisms of a centralized media system aren't going to work anymore And so we don't know what's going to work. So there's a sense. These are old problems that are taking new form It's not brand new On the other hand, we're dealing with it in a context none of us know well enough to know what the checks and balances of the circulation of information are. And we're at a point where the president, for his own reasons, is calling the New York Times and the Washington Post fake news. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. the ability to even talk about the problem is continually being blurred by the way that that label fake news is being flung around as if it means nothing, as if there's no definition of what that category stands for.
0: Right. Based on your expertise, do you feel that media history at some of these other transformative moments in time offer us clues to what the solutions to some of these might be for us today?
1: I think so. I think, I think the best news is we survived all those moments of transition, right? And there were, we see the same panics, the same fears come up again and again. And they the worst fears don't turn out to be true. Mm-hmm. Transformative fantasies don't turn out to be true either, that things remain relatively stable despite changes. But there are some disruptions. There are some, you know, history teaches us there are no media. Mm -hmm. There are media shift in emphasis and importance. But live theater Mm persists, you know, after cinema, after television. Radio persists after television and resurfaces as podcast today. Mm -hmm. Right? So even something that might have seemed marginal... Suddenly, can become more central to the culture. So, a lot of the things we fear happening aren't really what's going on. But so, once we get that perspective, we can say that how how did people deal with change at earlier moments? You know, what was the life cycle of a change? You know, how disruptive were these changes when they occurred? We can say that the rate of change has accelerated, Mm -hmm. but we can't say that change, large-scale change, hasn't occurred at other moments in time and hasn't had enormous repercussions. But humans exist, persist, and storytelling persists. And the things we value in human culture have survived all of these transitions across thousands of years of human history. So having the long view allows you to put in perspective the temporary disruptions and instabilities that we're going through right now.
0: Yeah, that that's one of the things that I, I like to talk to folks about who you, you hear a lot of talk about yeah the instability and how you can you can't depend on anything you know the, the the you know the iPhone's out now but it's gonna be a new thing in five months you know whatever all these things and how and, and, and at least for, for marketing folks and a lot of businesses and corporations they feel like they can never really get their handle on it before that it's changed again completely on them I, I, I love that idea that if you take the long view, You start things start to pop out that are actually the things you can grab onto, storytelling being one of them. If you know, if 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 storytelling and narrative is something that persists through all of them, it's a reasonable bet to make, I would think, that it will persist through this one as well. Um, and it's just about how we apply these things. Is that the way you think about that as well?
1: Oh, I think I think so. So, storytelling is one of those things. The human desire to participate, yeah, is one
0: that we would follow,
1: a desire to belong to a community larger than yourself and to feel that sense of social rootedness. And there are moments of disruption where our social rudeness shifts, but we see humans recalibrate again and again to find some community that they feel a part of. And so community is a really crucial part of all of that. You no, know, I think if we look at the history of any media, when it emerges, four groups are always there at the first phase of any new media. So those are the church, their politicians, their advertisers, and their pornographers. And those are the first four early adapters of every media transition across human history. And those are always the ones that are looking for new ways to get through the defense mechanisms of the culture and to be heard in a new way. They have reasons to spread the word. They have reasons to get things out in front of people. And they're appealing to the core things that make humans human. So sex in the case of pornographers, the desire for something bigger than ourselves in the case of religion politics, in the case of politician, and the kind of emotional undercurrent that brands and advertisement has always depended upon in one way or another. So those are the fundamentals. Now, then it's a question of not being led by the technology, but figuring out what's the right technology to achieve the relationship you want with a particular community. And more and more, it's about getting your message into as many different media platforms as you can. So it's a transmedia world we live in now, not a single medium world. The age where you could use the same ad as a billboard, as a magazine ad, as a spot on television doesn't work anymore, right? These media have different addresses for different publics, and understanding them and creating multiple messages around your brand is really an important part of the process. So I've been trying to tell brand executives to look at the Octopi movement, for example, Right, so that 99% 1% distinction took root through the Occupy movement. Whatever else we want to say Occupy achieved, that frame is one that has had enormous impact on the way we see the world and the ways we think about wealth inequality. And they were far more effective than any other group at getting that message out in front of people. And they did it without a centralized communication structure. They did it with hundreds of thousands and thousands of people creating their own media and spreading those media through every available platform, from chalk on the sidewalk to digital resources that spread through YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and so forth, from performance art on the sites of the protest to drum circles, right? We saw so many different ways that people were communicating that message images. So it should explode the idea of a unified brand, a single set of icons for a brand and invite a world of participatory branding that may get your messages out much more effectively than anything that's exist in the in the system today. And it's not like those the messages didn't have detractors, right? So the fear is if you're Madison Avenue, if you let people lose control of your brand, that counter messages are gonna get in there and adbusters are gonna go at you. They've been going at you for forty years, right? But it's, if you are creative, you have a, if your brand stands for something real, if you're trying to deliver the message in a way that encourages people to help you spread the message, the message gets out. And the message gets heard even if there are detractors who have other perspectives. Yeah. So I think, I think Occupy has so much to teach us about how to spread a core message in this network society and of participatory culture that we're talking about.
0: Is that where you're finding you're spending most of your time and interest right now is in the effect of media and, and media being leveraged on behalf of activism? Is that still kind of your, your current I mean, focus? that's
1: yeah, I started to say before, the first phase of my work with MacArthur was education. The second has been on politics. So for the last eight years, I've really been focusing on political communication and what's taking place there. So I interviewed 200 young activists for the book, By Any Media Necessary and trace the case, a number of case studies of successes and mixed successes of activist networks that have sought to change the conversation. That phrase, by any media necessary, says a lot about what we found. Right? It's not about Twitter revolutions or Facebook revolutions. It's a transmedia revolution. It's communication across all media platforms. So whatever the resources you have access to, whatever the community you're trying to reach, it's about taking advantage of, all of those communication resources. So at the current moment, yes, the digital and the mobile are where the new stuff is taking place, where we're seeing opportunities that didn't exist before, and young people are flooding in and taking advantages of them. But they're also taking to the streets. They're also using wheat, wheat paste and paper. right? They're also creating alternative comics and printing them out. They're doing all kinds of things to get the message out. So that's a key part of it. And the other is storytelling again. So what we talk about is the civic imagination. So the idea of the civic imagination is the left so often wants to believe the facts will set us free. If we just get the information out there, it changes people's. But the right is always understood. It's hearts and minds, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just minds. It's hearts and minds. How do we shift people's feelings, their emotions, their sense of connection to each other? And stories are the means by which we change that in a fundamental way. So what role does imagination play? First of all, if we're going to build a better world, we've got to imagine what a better world looks like. We have to see, we have to imagine the process of change. What are we? How do we get from where we are now to where we want to be? How do we imagine ourselves as political agents who can contribute to the process of change? How do we imagine ourselves as part of a larger community, what I call an imagining community, that is capable of making change together? And then how do we... Uh, connect with groups whose experiences and perspectives are different from our own. That's the base of political mobilization. Stories have always given us the way we do that. So in the Smithsonian Institute, there's a statue of George Washington wearing a toga. Not that, as far as we know, Washington didn't go to toga parties at William and Mary, right? It's not that he actually wore togas. It's that people of the beginning of the American Republic thought about it as a restoration of Athenian democracy. That they wrote their documents and pen names of Greek orators and Roman heroes, right? That, that, that sense of the imagination of the classical world that they knew from these elite colleges brought the founding fathers together and gave them a shared cultural capital in which to imagine change. Think about the language of the black church in the 1950s and 1960s Martin Luther King, I've been to the mountaintop, I've seen the promised land. We crossed the River Jordan, all of that language that comes out of the story of Moses and freeing the people. And the Joshua generation that follows the Moses generation, which Obama has called the Joshua generation, which is again keeping the language of stories. What we found as young activists today, the language is from popular culture. Mm-hmm. The language of politics is the three finger salute from Hunger Games. It's uh, superheroes at protest rallies. It's Princess Leia, the woman's place is in the resistance. It's the songs from Hamilton, you know, around, it's it's Harry Potter. All around the world, these stories are the ones that are shared cultural capital of young activists. And so they're using this language of popular culture to break out of the broken language of politics. What the young activists told us again and again was political language didn't work for them. On the one hand it was exclusive, it was written for policy wonks, and unless you're already immersed in the political conversation, there's no entry point into the language of politics. Maybe that's the Hillary Clinton problem of seven point plans for everything and no big vision to stitch it together, right? The sense of politics being dry and for, for student council nerds and no one else, right? And so many young people never got invited into the political process, didn't see the language of speaking to them. On the other hand, it's so partisan today. So bound up with these old fights that there's no consensus building. There's no common ground. There's no shared values. So if you go to pop culture, you now have a language that is accessible to large numbers of people, that the stories and metaphors are ones that resonate with young people because they live them, and you have a language that is not yet heavily partisan. Mm -hmm. So what makes Superman a great hero may be something that the right and left could agree upon. Sure. And think through issues of power and responsibility. You know, those are questions that create a common ground and maybe the basis for new forms of politics. So some of it is right now studying the civic imagination and understanding the role that stories play in fostering that, and the way young activists are using the tools of this participatory culture, this transmedia environment to get their stories out. And some of it is we're going into communities and trying to stimulate these discussions about the future. So we go to a group, we're going to do a, a ga- we're going to Fayetteville, Arkansas in another month and going to ministers there and sort of helping, doing a brainstorm on the future of religion in American life. And we're saying let's go out to 2050, 2060. What do we imagine the future looks like? The goal is to get out of the constraints of the current moment and think about possibilities that we might not entertain otherwise, explore what those are, find the common ground, and then go back and figure out what the mechanisms of change that gets us there. are. And we find shared values run very deep, not only in the U.S., but around the world, of what we want our future to be 50 years out. But how we get there is where we are divided so sharply yeah. that we can't agree on anything in the, in the U.S. Senate at the moment.
0: Yeah, well, and, and I know we're almost at our hour, but I have one one more question for you on this point. So if 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 it seems I'm, I'm so inspired by the idea of, of of folks taking popular culture or or superheroes or anything and and retelling them in ways that are relevant to them and and telling a new story and with their own culture or their own worldview, whatever, and we find that as a new language that kind of cuts through some of this divide. Do you find then in some of your looking at education and what what skills need to be taught or 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 fostered in in young people, it, is that it's it's no longer just about knowing Moby Dick and being able to quote Moby Dick, but it's about being able to turn Moby Dick into something relevant to today in some way. Is that? Yes. Yeah.
1: That's the connection point between everything we've talked about, right? Yeah. Rewriting Moby Dick for the 21st century is acquiring those skills to take stories that are created by someone else and turn them into a language or a resource you can use to tell your own story and to talk about things that matter to you. And there were lots of people that wouldn't have listened to those young prisoners in Rhode Island talk about gangs or drugs or their experience in prison who would go to see a stage performance of Moby Dick that was different because it had hip-hop songs and had young people talking about Moby Dick in a contemporary setting. You know, Think about Hamilton and its success of taking this classical story of the founding of the American Republic and turning it into a musical that people sing the songs and discuss the characters. And they're writing Shiler's sister fanfic, right? This, this sense of resources from the past being mobilized when they can be turned into stories that speak the present. So I would like every kid around the world to have that sense of entitlement to retell their culture in their own terms and to mix things up to create something new. In the same way that my grandmother learned to make those quilts so many years ago, right? Stitching the culture together from raw materials at hand but creating something new that speaks not just for yourself but for your community and as a gift to someone else. That's the ethos I think a participatory culture fosters around the core stories. And a storyteller should want that to happen. They should want their stories to be the resource the culture uses to communicate with itself. And want to see the value that comes of a thousand minds responding to your story as opposed to the individual creator in his attic creating something from nothing. I'll,
0: I'll, I'll get over it in due time, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> No, it's, it's great. It's fantastic. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. Yeah, this has been wonderful.